journey can only be taken one step at a time and requires paying close attention to nothing beyond where the next step leads. This is the Thin Space Podcast. My name is Evan Chasteen, and I am the host of this podcast alongside Jody and Larry Green, the founders of Cloudwalk Ministries. And today we have another guest with us. It is Carl McCullman. Carl, welcome to the podcast. So good to be here. Thank you. Yes, it's great to have you here with us. Jody told me about you and I immediately purchased your book for today's episode. Uh, But Jody, could you jump in and tell us how you guys came to know Carl and how uh, we came to be here recording this podcast today? We would, we would love to share how we met Carl. It's another one of these stories of amazing connectors in, in this community of ours. And so dear friends had the blessing of traveling with Carl and his wife to Wales. Is that correct, Carl? To Scotland, to Iona, to Scotland. Scotland. Okay. <laughs> to Iona, Scotland. And after they spent um, this time with Carl and they came home, they reached out to Larry and I and said, you have got to meet Carl. And so they arranged a dinner party. And um, I-, I can only speak for us, Carl, but we were intrigued. We fell in love. We thought we really want to get to know this man better. And then COVID happened. And so we we, we haven't seen one another for a couple of years, but um, so grateful that you're here and going to join us. And I just wanted to read a little bit on on your bios, just so our, our listeners who haven't uh, met you yet will um, we'll just know how fortunate we are to have you with us today. But Carla is a contemplative writer, storyteller, podcaster, and spiritual director. We love spiritual directors. He is a life professed member of a lay Cistercian community under the spiritual guidance of the Trappist monks. He is the author of numerous books, including the Big Book of Christian Mysticism, and regularly speaks and leads retreats on topics related to Christian mysticism, Celtic spirituality, and interfaith dialogue. Carl and his wife, artist Fran McCollman, live near Atlanta, Georgia. You know, Carl, you just carry a presence that is so, so beautiful, and I know it speaks to the journey you've been on. that I recently learned started at 16 years of age when you had an encounter with God. Um, We were fascinated by your story and you're such a beautiful storyteller. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that story with our audience? Sure. Um, Yes, that goes back to my sophomore year in high school, I believe it was. Um, uh, I won't uh, betray too much about my age, but let's just say that the person living in the White House was also from Georgia at that time. <laughs> so, um, you know, gosh, 40, it'll be 45 years next, next February that this happened. And I grew up uh, in a very kind of mainstream Protestant family. We were members of our neighborhood Lutheran church. And, you know, I, we were what you would call cultural Christians. You know, we were we were sincere in our faith, but it wasn't something that particularly had a very deep-rooted claim on our lives. And and I'm I'm choosing my words carefully because really my my parents did have a meaningful faith and it got deeper over time. So I don't mean to, you know, dismiss it in any way. 
but um, but I, you know, nothing prepared me for what I would experience that weekend. Let's put it that way. So um, it was a, a a youth weekend event. We were in. I grew up in Virginia, so we were at an old Presbyterian conference center called Massanetta Springs, which is absolutely beautiful. In fact, I went back there about ten or fifteen years ago, and it was just as wonderful and you know, gorgeous as I remembered it from my childhood. And I'd been to Massanetta numerous times, always in the context of, you know, church, you know, youth ministry related events. And this particular one was the first time I'd gone there in the winter time. And I will be, I'll, I'll tell on myself, I will be very honest. I wasn't particularly, you know, there with the most pious of motives. I was more interested in girls than in God, you know, that kind of thing. 16 years old. And um, and just was kind of marginally, you know, interested in the programming, but the programming was very good. And as the weekend progressed, I really became more and more engaged with the conversations and the the topics that we were discussing, you know. And it was a weekend event, so Friday evening, all day Saturday, and then Saturday night they had a communion service. And so again, this is 1977. So imagine acoustic guitars singing songs like Kumbaya, they'll know we are Christians by our love, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Everybody kind of holding each other arm in arm, you know, passing the bread and the wine of the Holy Communion down the aisle. So each person gives it to the person next to them. And, you know, I'd been to services like that before and would go to others afterward. But something unique happened that night. And it's, I'm going to stumble over my words. It's, it's almost impossible to put into words. I, I've written about it actually in, I think, three of my books. So, you know, I've tried to write about it and, and write, you know, and, and be faithful to what happened. But, but I always struggle with it because uh, to use the fancy word, it was an ineffable experience. It was something that can't be put into words. So here, I'm going to try anyways. First, I just noticed the love the love in the room was palpable. And, you know, it was remarkable for this, you know, this rather shy, introverted teenage boy to feel like I was in love with everybody in that room. And everybody in that room was in love with me and in love with everyone else. Um, and it was, you know, it was a wonderful feeling, kind of a joyful feeling. And again, I'm going to stumble over my words here then it seemed to morph into kind of the experience of light. It was as if somebody had filled the room with incandescent lights or fluorescent lights or whatever, and turned, you know, turned the dial up to 11. The room was luminous. And of course, that didn't happen on a physical level, but it certainly was my experience. So this profound sense of of love, of being loved, of being love, this profound sense of luminous or radiance or light. And then the third quality I would say is there was a timelessness to this. You know, I can look back after, you know, many years and realize this was probably, you know, a 60 minute, you know, give or take, just communion service. But it felt as if, you know, it's just time stood still. It's like, you know, to use some theological language, it's like chronos, you know, the time of the ticking clock uh, just dropped out and all that was there was kairos. 
you know, the sacredness of the present moment. And so it's like that present moment was just a flower that opened and opened and opened. And I was just being brought deeper and deeper into this love and this light. Well, you know, eventually everybody had communion. We sang one more song. I'm sure, you know, they, there was a final prayer or two. And then the communion service was done. And being a room full of, what, 100 teenagers or so, what did they do? You know, at least in a Lutheran church on a Saturday night, well, they broke down the altar and all that stuff and set up a, a stereo system. They're going to have a dance. But I was in no, no mood to dance at that point. And I remember going and talking to a few of my friends and saying, wasn't that just the most amazing experience? And they responded, it, it was very nice. Uh, would you like to go grab a Coke? And it was really that moment when I realized that I had been given a gift that was for me. And even though it felt as if there was objective ontological shifts happening, you know, this light and this love, how could anybody have missed it? Apparently it was an interior gift. And I was so struck by that kind of disconnect that I, I couldn't stay for the dance. I, I went back to my room and I just sat there and I can look back now and I said, you know, I entered into a contemplative space. I just sat there in the silence and pondered, you know, what had happened to me. It's like scripture talks about Mary pondering these things in her heart. You know, I was kind of like my own little Mary at that point, having just given birth to this amazing kind of encounter with love with a capital L and not even sure what to do about it, not even sure how to articulate it. So, you know, I, from there, I just began a journey. And I mean, we can talk about the various twists and turns and believe me, there have been twists and turns and a few cul-de-sacs and a couple of, you know, wrong turns along the way. But, um, you know, here we are, again, almost 45 years later, and I try to calibrate my life toward that love. You know, it seems to me that's the purpose of life. That's the purpose of existence. All of my, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my daughter when she was alive, or, you know, everything, all the work I do is all just my feeble efforts to respond to that love. Thank you. It's even better the second time I hear that story. <laughs> I'm like taking notes about a story. I've never taken notes about someone's story, but thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, you said it's ineffable, but I, as I was sitting there here, I had a, an experience about 20 years ago. And as you're, I just want you to know the way you've unpacked it may help my experience make sense. <laughs> if that makes any sense oh, in yeah, a beautiful way. That. And just, and it was, yeah, it was so much similarity, but thank you for that. One other thought, and, and, and I don't mean to belittle anyone's experience by saying this, because I think part of the abundance of God's grace is that it is abundant. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many people like you over the years who have reported something similar in their life journey. And I have a friend who's a minister with the Disciples of Christ, and he also has worked as a, as a psychotherapist. And he once told me, he said, you know, oftentimes teenagers will have these kind of opening up moments. 
and and I mention this because I don't think I don't think that reduces the specialness of it. I think it it anchors the specialness of something like this in the limitless love and mercy of God. That that God is eager to touch every one of us in some way, shape, or form. That may take different forms. For some people, it may be this kind of, you know, extraordinary moment of encounter, the, you know, feeling all this love and all this light. There's a, the, the Trappist writer, Thomas Merton, talks about falling in love with everybody. Very similar language almost that I could use. But then I think there, for others, it's like the sun rising and it's a slow dawning. And it, there may not be this dramatic moment of encounter, but there's kind of this, you know, this wonderful phrase from Eugene Peterson, this long obedience in the same direction. And it's important to, to think about that word obedience in its original context. It really means listening. So this long listening, this long attentiveness, this long making myself available to the slow work of, of the Spirit in our hearts. That, that the Holy Spirit wants, wants to, you know, the, the word conversion kind of gets overused. I like the word calibrate, wants to recalibrate our hearts toward that love and is happy to do it dramatically like St. Paul on the horse heading to, um, I don't know if he was on a horse or not, but he's been painted as being on a horse, heading to Damascus are very, very gradually. And I don't think one is any better than another. It's just, it's God meeting us in terms of our personality, our life story, our needs. How, how do we need to receive the love of God? And I believe God comes to us according to our needs. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your new book, The Eternal Heart. And we love to talk about the heart on thin space. So, so maybe to start, Carl, just, you know, as you're writing a book, how does, how does God ignite that creativity in the direction with which he would like you to go when you're, when you're thinking about a book, sharing, sharing your heart with your community? Well, what a rich question, you know, and the first, and it's almost flippant, but, but it, I really am sincere. The first thing I want to say is, you know, well, God keeps waiting for me to get out of my own way. You know, that, that there's, there's a little bit of that involved. You know, I'm very, very blessed that in junior high, I had a wonderful uh, English teacher who I later in my adult years found out was a woman of faith, but who encouraged me as a writer and who told me that, that she thought I had a gift. And so writing has just been, you know, part of my ambition. And then, you know, for the last however many years, my vocation for my, my lifelongs. And, and so, you know, obviously growing out of my faith, I see it as, you know, a gift from God. And like, you know, all gifts, there's this, you know, invitation slash challenge to use the gift well. So I try to do that. Uh how my writing career has unfolded is um, really in conversation, I, I would say, with primarily with the tradition of Christian spiritual writing, which, of course, begins with scripture. And you, you probably have noticed, you know, in the book Eternal Heart, it is really structured around eight verses or passages in scripture involving gifts of the heart gifts that God has given us. And so um, 
so there's obviously scripture is kind of like the headwaters. And then there's the tradition, you know, 2000 years. And, and, you know, I kind of subscribe to, you know, what Brian McLaren called the generous orthodoxy in that I, I love Christian spiritual writing, whether it comes out of the Orthodox tradition, the Catholic tradition, the Anglican, mainstream Protestant, evangelical, charismatic, you know, across the board. And so, um, you know, so I don't worry about, you know, was this author, you know, was this author a Catholic? Was this author an Episcopalian? Whatever that, yeah, you know, they, what I'm more interested in is how does this particular person respond to the call of divine love in, in his or her or their life? So there's kind of this, this dialogue, you know, scripture, tradition, meaning this lineage, this literary lineage. Uh, then, you, you know, you hear the three-legged stool, scripture, tradition, and reason. So reason would obviously be my own experience, my own encounter, my encounter with God through my own prayer practice, but then also the encounter with the wisdom that I discern in the material that I'm working with. And, um, you know, and, and I also extend it beyond, you know, kind of beyond the campus, as you will. I'm, I'm interested in poetry uh, even poets that are not necessarily people of faith. And something that, you know, and you, you alluded to this in the bio you read of me, that, you know, a longstanding interest of mine is in interfaith dialogue. And so I did that in this book as well, encouraged by my editor. With each chapter, obviously, I begin with scripture. I pull in at least one voice from the Christian tradition, but then I also try to pull in a voice from outside of the Christian tradition, a Buddhist writer or a Jewish writer or a Muslim writer or someone like that, you know, not, not in the interest of any kind of rel relativism, but really in the interest of celebrating kind of the universality of these gifts that, that, you know, we as Christians acknowledge through the, through the authority we, we find in scripture, but that we see where God is at work literally everywhere. So, um, so, you know, back to your question, how do, how do I, you know, how am I creative well, you know, I listen and, and then I try to tell the truth and, and then I rely on good editors. <laughs> so somewhere in all of that, a book is born and hopefully it, it can be a blessing to the people who read it. So, um, you know, writing, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, you, you go to a concert and you see, you know, a virtuoso musician you know, and they get up there and they play the piano or the guitar and they make it look so easy. And, you know, there's been hours and hours and hours of work. Well, writing a book is the same way, of course. So, um, you know, lots of lots of um, not blood, sweat and tears, but but sweat and a few tears and then the occasional moments of angst. But but somehow by by the grace of God, it all comes together in the end. Well, Carl, you've you've written a number of books. What what compelled you? to uh, to birth this book what what moved you to write this this specific book on well um it really did begin with an encounter with scripture and the verse that gave the book its title and that really launched me on the journey that culminated in the writing of this book is ecclesiastes 311 and, um, and I, I, you know, of course, I've done a number of interviews now for the book, and I can't remember when that verse first, you know, really lit a fire for me. I, you know, after that moment at Massanetta, 
over the next year, I read the Bible cover to cover. So certainly I had encountered Ecclesiastes as early as my adolescence. But as you know, you know, there are passages, verses, you know, uh, jewels of wisdom in scripture that you may have heard 50 times. And on the 51st time, it's like God really moves you to receive that wisdom. And so, so that was the case with this particular verse. And, and it's one of those verses that gets translated differently in different English translations. But, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head which particular translation this would, would resonate with, but, but basically the verse says, God has made everything beautiful in its time, and God has placed eternity in the human heart. And, and other translations will say God has placed a sense of timelessness in the human heart, or God has placed the past and the future in the human heart. So different, you know, different uh, uh, translators or translation teams have, have rendered that in different ways. But the, um, the Hebrew word is um, olam. And olam is a fascinating word because it not only has this sense of timelessness or eternality, but it also has kind of this cosmic sense. So, you know, you could almost say God has placed the space-time continuum in the human heart. It's a really bold statement that, you know, that our heart, our tiny little heart, whether you're talking the, the physical heart or kind of our spiritual heart, but that somehow within that heart, God has poured all of eternity into us. And, um, you know, what does that mean? So, there, so obviously there was this initial question of what does that mean? But then also, you know, kind of on this really deep level of, um, you know, trusting that that part of the, you know, the, the ultimate gift that God gives us is, is the gift of eternal life. Uh, but, you know, the kind of this assumption we have that eternal life is a gift given to us after our physical death. But this verse kind of blows that out of the water and suggests, you know, wait a minute, your, your eternal life has already been given to you. It's already in your heart. And so, you know, the more, so it's like the more I meditated on that verse, the more my mind got blown. My heart is just sitting there grooving on the love and my mind is just, you know, boom, you know. And so where that led me to was, well, what else does scripture say about the heart? You know, and of course there are verses that, is it Romans, you know, the law of, of God has been written in our hearts. You know, the, the passage that Evan read uh, from the first chapter of the book where I talk about from in Psalms that there has been a highway placed in our heart, kind of a journey has been placed in our heart. Silence has been placed in our heart. Wisdom has been placed in our heart. You know, and then there are even warnings in scripture, you know, that the heart can be deceitful. So, you know, there's, there's all these different kind of heart comments or heart, again, I, the word I keep coming back to is gifts, heart gifts that are acknowledged throughout throughout scripture both you know both the the hebrew testament and the new testament christian testament and so um as i read these various verses so i started collecting them i had a document in my you know on on my hard drive just every time i'd find a new heart verse you know it went in there and i got this list of them and you know i i think i ended up with eight verses and then i just had this kind of moment of insight, kind of this eureka moment. Don't ask me how it happened. But I, what I saw in those verses, I saw the Beatitudes 
and I saw um, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. And I just, you know, it was just this moment of, wow, the heart really is kind of, you know, where God has placed the breadcrumbs. And so that's how, you know, the book, um, the subtitle of the book, The Mystical Path to a Joyful Life, you know, and I know the word, we can talk about mysticism and mystical. I know those words can make some people nervous, but I, I really use it in, in the kind of its most literal sense. And the word mystical is really just a fancy word for hidden, you know, this kind of hidden, hidden in the love of God, hidden in the mystery of our own heart is this path to, you know, and why joy? Um, well, you know, it's, it's the second fruit of the spirit behind love and, and God is love. So I really see joy as kind of the summit of the gifts that we are called to. Obviously, love comes before joy, but there, you know, the, the ultimate gift is the giver, you know, that God's gift to us is ultimately God's own self. And so, but the fruit of, the fruit of that essential gift is the gift of joy. And, and let, me, let me be really clear. I'm not saying that I'm somebody who lives, you know, 100% blissful, you know, 24-7. I'm always joyful. Hey, I'm a human being. I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. I have good days and bad days like everyone else. But I do believe that, that living, you know, an intentional life of prayer launches us on that journey, launches us on that pilgrim path, that process of recalibration, where little by little, by the, the ongoing formation of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, we become more joyful beings. And that this has real material implications in how we live our lives, how we conduct our relationships, you know, and, and how, we, um, how we respond to, to God's love. And if you want to talk, you know, in kind of traditional religious language, how we work for the kingdom. So the book is at the end, it's really kind of a, um, a report card on this journey. I mean, the, I, I first encountered that verse in Ecclesiastes probably four or five years before the book was finished. So it was a, a journey of several years as, as, I, um, as I developed this. So. Hey, Carl, whenever you say the word heart, uh, which, which came up so much in there, what are you, I imagine you've spent a lot of time thinking about that word, maybe in different contexts. What do you, what do you think of whenever you hear the word heart? Like I think of feeling centered, knowing center, this organ inside of my body that goes bump, 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 bump. But there's, there's, there's a depth to what you're saying that seems beyond all of those individually, mm -hmm. uh, maybe encapsulates them together in some way. But what are you thinking of whenever you say the word heart? Well, everything that you just spoke of, I would describe as the tip of the iceberg that there is obviously the, the physical heart, you know, in the book, I talk about heart transplants and I talk about, um, I do talk about our heartbeat and the silence between the beats. So, so this is not some sort of dualistic, we're only going to talk about the spiritual heart and not consider the physical heart. I, I, you know, I believe my, I guess my anthropology is that body and spirit are knit together in the love of God. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an old school Christian. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I don't know what that looks like. You know, Jesus became incarnate. You know, there, there's, there's an essential goodness to us being embodied beings. 
And, and I believe that, you know, no matter how much we may have gotten off course because of sin or because of living in a world that has been, you know, marred by sin, but, you know, it's to be a human being and an embodied human being is a basically good thing, even though we've been hurt by sin. It's not that the body is somehow bad and we have to get beyond it. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. So, you know, so there's this essential goodness of the physicality, but we're not just physical beings. You know, we are physical beings uh, emerging out of the boundless love and mercy of God, which means that, that again, we are, we are eternal creatures and, and we will not be limited by illness or suffering or, or the cessation of physical life. Um, so, so yeah, you know, there's the pump you know, the blood pump in our chest, there is the neural center that is, you know, that really only in the last, what, 50 years or so that, that contemporary science has been able to identify that the heart really is second only to the brain in terms of its neural concentration to the point that, that you know, the, I mean, when you think about, you know, all the, you, you mentioned kind of the love, you know, I, in, our, in our culture, this idea that the head is thinking and the heart is feeling. Um, but, you know, in, in ancient Israel, the heart was also the center of thought as well as feeling. And, you know, and so science is kind of catching up with these ideas and saying, yes, the heart has its own deep way of knowing that seems to be at a level deeper than mere rational cognition. Yeah, that happens up here in the cerebral cortex. But, but there's still this, this fundamental kind of knowing, the intuition, if you will, or um, I, I don't even know what language to use, that the heart seems to represent. And then, you know, I think beyond that, um, again, words fail, but I, I, just, I just fall back on the gifts that the heart contains eternity. The heart contains the Holy Spirit. The heart contains love. The heart contains wisdom. The heart contains the law of God, which is not meant in a, you know, I got you sense, but it meant in a, this is the mind of God given to us. It's available to us. And so, um, you know, one of the first images I use in the book, you know, if any of you are fans of British science fiction, you know, the old Doctor Who, I guess they still make it, Doctor Who TV show, where he has this thing called the TARDIS, and it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And I say, that's the heart that, you know, the, 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 the physical heart maybe is just, again, a blood pump, but there's this spiritual dimension of the heart that is bigger than the physical heart because it's big enough to contain eternity and to contain love and to contain the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so I guess for me, the heart represents the totality of what it means to be human. So it does represent the body and the physical heart. But then it also represents spirit, soul, mind, cognition, intuition, um, the whole package. So that's, I guess, really what I see that the heart uh, invites us into. Amen, Carl. <laughs> Just amen, amen. Hmm. Um, there was another scripture you mentioned in the book that was one that I spent a lot of time meditating on. It was Psalm 84.5. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Yeah. The thoroughfare that leads to spiritual happiness is not a physical road, but a highway in the heart. Would you share a little bit more about that? That intrigued me. 
So yes, obviously, as I, as I was doing my research on heart wisdom in scripture, this verse, you know, came up. And, you know, initially, you know, kind of like, well, how does that metaphor work? Clearly, it's a metaphor, you know, we don't physically have, you know, a highway in our heart. But I think what I what I came to realize is that the metaphor of journey is so much a part of spiritual writing, spiritual discourse over the centuries. You know, think about um, Dante with, you know, his journey from the Inferno to the Paradiso, or Purgatorio to the Paradiso, his divine comedy, you know, this journey up the mountain. Obviously, in scripture, we see, you know, Moses and the the Israelites in their 40-year journey. Um, You know, uh, the early contemplative kind of teachers in the Christian tradition journeyed from the cities of the Roman Empire into the deserts of Egypt and and Israel and Palestine. We call them the desert fathers and the desert mothers. So, you know, so this this journey motif has always been been part of the scriptural um, or the, the spiritual world, at least in a Christian context, probably in other contexts too. And so I realized, okay, so God gives us God gives us a path to walk our spiritual journey on. Now, what, what can we, uh, you know, glean from this? And the first thing I realized, and, and again, I don't want to in any way um, denigrate the power of, of a decisive moment of accepting Christ into our hearts or accepting, you know, orienting our lives towards God. You know, again, the archetype there is St. Paul on the Damascus Road. For so many people that, you know, the born-again experience, the, the, the kind of decisive conversion experience. But, um, but you know, even my decisive, decisive experience that happened when I was 16, you know, there were lots of twists. I've already alluded to this, lots of twists and turns on my journey, both before and after that moment. And I you know, that's been my sense that that's true for many, many, many people, that for so many of us, our lives are a journey and our lives in response to the love of God has this kind of journey quality about it. So what I realized is, you know, that bumper sticker, be patient with me, God hasn't finished with me yet. I think that's wise, that there's wisdom there. And that when we interact with people, we ought to bring that sense of generosity that everyone is on a journey. And so take, for example, if you're in a relationship with somebody who is just difficult to deal with, or, you know, somebody you love has really kind of rejected faith and and is angry, you know, and wants nothing to do with the gospel, that, um, that we should meet that with a spirit of generosity. And, and just, you know, the question is not where are you, but where are you going? You know, where is your journey taking you? And even, you know, like I said in, in the book, even if you meet somebody that seems to be going in the wrong direction on the highway, you know, again, another bumper sticker, God allows U-turns, you know, that, that for some people, life, the, 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 the detours in life may actually be their path to, to their greatest uh, wisdom or their, you know, discovering their ministry, discovering who they are truly called to be. So, so, so to really have this kind of generosity towards the fact that God works with us in process, I guess that's really what I'm trying to say here. And so I see the highway in the heart as the gift of process that is given to all of us. I'll just say, say one other thing. Um, 
there's a there was a wonderful English writer named Carol Hauslander. She died in the 1950s. So she she wrote a, you know around the time of World War One through World War Two, and then a few years beyond that. But she had this beautiful image that a person, you know, she uses traditional religious language here, but a person who is like a serious sinner. Um, she said it's like Jesus is in the tomb in their heart. That. Um, you know, she refused to believe that even, you know, even the worst sinner in the world that Jesus has given up on, but that Jesus is like lying in the tomb in their heart. So Jesus is dead in them. But what did Jesus do when he was in the tomb? He resurrected. And so always this idea of, you know, she said, reverence the Christ who is lying in repose in the heart of the sinner or the heart of the, the, the person who appears to be lost, maybe somebody lost in addiction or alcoholism or anger, you know, or whatever the, the circumstances in their lives may be. And, you know, when I first read that in her book, it really brought home to me this idea, you know, think about the Sermon on the Mount, you know, judge not, you know, be perfect, like, like the, the heavenly father who sends the sun to shine on the the good and the and the wicked or the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous you know it's like jesus is really saying love them all love them all um you you've, you've probably seen that horrible bumper sticker you know kill them all let god sort them out the the gospel is the opposite of that love them all and let the holy spirit work in in everyone's lives according to how they need to be convicted or converted or recalibrated and I find that just incredibly freeing. And it, it has been the foundation of my, my ability, again, to work with Christians of all, all you know, walks of life, to work with people of other faiths, to be, you know, especially in this day and age with all the political division in our country. You know, it's like we all need to find some way to be able to relate to the people with whom we strongly disagree. Oftentimes they are very, you know, combative towards us. And, um, and I think that's true no matter where you are on the political spectrum. I think we all experience that right now. And, but those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have this obligation to love everyone. You know, a funny quote from uh, the, the British writer G.K. Chesterton, you know, who said, Jesus told us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies because sometimes they're the same person. <laughs> uh, wise words there, you know? And so, um, so yeah, you know, we're, we're not off the hook. We're, you know, I, I, I believe I've been called into a relationship with the God who is love. The, the, that call includes a mandate for me to love everyone, even if I think their lives have totally gone off the rails, you know? And so, um, so it's not that you just, you, you don't use your mind. You don't have a, have a discerning heart. I mean, you know, people whose lives have gone off the rails, sometimes they need challenge, they need intervention, they might need boundaries set. You know, I mean, obviously there are different ways to love people when they are in, in these difficult periods in their lives. But, but even when we have to set boundaries, when we have to be, be, you know, confrontational, it has to emerge out of love. That seems to be the core, the core teaching here. Thank you for that, Carl. Such a blessing um, and a little bit of conviction, if, I, if I'm being honest with everyone here. But I just that vision of Christ in the tomb in someone's heart. Oh, my goodness. Um, I will I will remember that vision.
visual for a long, long time. You know, one thing you talked about and you mentioned it here, the Beatitudes and the Beatitudes for me anyway, has been one of those parts of scripture that I've, I've wrestled with a little bit and, and, and try to understand. And something you said in the book, early in the book is about the Beatitudes. It's how to cultivate blessing in your own lives. And that, that really resonated with me when I read that. I don't know um, if you have anything to say about that, because it was a new way. You talk about paradoxes and changing our perspectives. That changed my perspective on the Beatitudes. Well, you know, and certainly I, I have a pretty high theology of grace, Jody. So I, I believe, you know, we're not cultivating anything that hasn't been freely given to us. So, so let, me, let me state that up front. But, you know, as is so often, you know, the nature of God's grace, you know, um, God is a gentleman. God, God does not force God's gifts upon us. And so the gifts are given. And then the question is, how do we respond? How do we choose to embody those gifts, choose to, to you know, to put them to work? I, that's probably kind of a, you know, maybe a, a crass way of, of putting it. But, you know, the you know, it's like they say, you know, if, if, if you know how to read, but you never open a book, you may as well be illiterate. You know, if, if you've been given all these amazing gifts and then you don't, you know, respond, it's like the gifts are just, you know, they're in boxes on a shelf. And so, um, so this idea that, you know, that, and the Beatitudes talk about a convicting statement. The Beatitudes themselves are very convicting um, in terms of how they challenge us you know, in many ways, turning things upside down, you know, the blessed are those of you who are persecuted. And, and I don't think Jesus was ever telling us to make, you know, make a fetish out of persecution. I, I, I really don't think that's, you know, and that's, I think, one of the ways that, that that has been misinterpreted. But I do think he's, he's saying, you know, sometimes there's going to be conflict. It's just going to happen. You know, the, the people, people won't get it when you're, when you're calibrating your life towards love and mercy. And, um, and that too can be a blessing. And, and I think we're called to trust because on the surface, it don't feel like a blessing on the surface. It hurts, you know? And so, um, so it's, you know, it's back to kind of what I was saying about joy a little bit earlier that, um, that joy, I think it can be operative in our lives, even when we're suffering even when we are miserable for any of a variety of reasons, because joy is something that's deeper than just our surface level emotions. And so I, I think it's the same thing with, with the beatitude, with the, with the blessedness, the, the, you know, the happiness, because the word makarios, the Greek word can be translated as blessed, but also as happy, which, and again, when I think of happy, I think that's kind of the emotional component of joy. So, you know, so, so Jesus is playing with us a little. He's saying, you can be happy, even if all these things are going on, you know? And, um, and you know, if, you know, it's kind of like, you know, like take, take um, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, the implication there is that you're living in a place where, where, where you don't have righteousness, you know, where there is, there is, is a, a lack of righteousness that, the, you know, a world that is marred by sin, marred by injustice, marred by systems of privilege that hurt some people at the, you know, to the benefit of others or, or whatever, you know, the, the, the idea of systemic sin. 
you know, so, so, you know, it's kind of like holiness and righteousness. What, what are the distinction there? You know, I, I tend to think of holiness as very much a personal, you know, what, what I can do to get my own life in order. But then the call to righteousness is this bigger call of how do we, how do we create a society that is calibrated to responding to the love of God? So, um, you know, so Jesus is saying, look, you know, the world we live in is not a particularly righteous world, but in your hunger for it, your thirst for it, you will find blessedness. So, and of course, then, you know, and then he says things like, blessed are the peacemakers. So it's not just, you know, thirsting for peace, but actually out there and creating peace, being agents of reconciliation. You know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who lament, for they shall be comforted that, that the world will, you know, back to the highway, you're never going to drop anchor, even in your darkest moments, that the spirit is always there calling us to new life, calling us to, to um, renewal. And so, um, so we can, we can take, take some measure of hope, even in those times that are so, so difficult. So, you know, again, I think it's, it's trying to read, to read the um, Beatitudes, to hear the Beatitudes in that kind of process sense. That Jesus isn't just, you know, taking a snapshot, but he's saying, you know, step into this process, step into this dynamic journey and journey with me and you will find the blessedness that I, I just, I'm giving you because I love you so much. It's interesting. You mentioned blessed are those who lament and we have about 12 or 15 of us walking through the Psalms, praying a Psalm a day, and then we gather once a week to kind of share and we were all pretty uncomfortable with David's lament. It was interesting that, and it just, for me, it was just this awareness that I'm missing the blessing in, in the lament. I'm missing, um, maybe missing Jesus in my lament. So I love that you shared that because it's given me a new perspective again. You know, who has really helped me, you know, and I'm speaking as, as a privileged white American, but who has helped me has been Christians of color. Who have taught me to read to read the Psalms of Lament in a, in a new way, and I, I'm not trying to get too political here, but but I think you know the the reality is is that some of us have have been very very blessed, and others of whatever circumstances sometimes their lives are lives that that call them to cry out to the Lord and lament. And those brothers and sisters in Christ can teach those of us who have been kind of given, given a, a, a more comfy life, we can learn a lot from them. Mm -hmm. And again, it's also convicting because then the question becomes, how do we respond? You know, scripture talks about bearing one another's burdens. How do we respond to alleviate the suffering of those who, who for whatever circumstances, social, political, economic, whatever, but their circumstances are different than ours. And I, I do believe we have an obligation as Christians to reach out to our brothers and sisters in the faith. And at this point in the podcast, we've asked Carl if he would lead us in a prayer practice. Remember, the Thin Space podcast is more than information. It's an invitation into the presence of the divine. And so Carl uh, will now lead us in a practice as we sit silently before the presence of God. So for the practice I would like to share, in a way, this may not even seem like a practice, but I think it is a practice. I think it's something that, that we can take with us in our day-to-day -day lives. And I'm going to pull 
two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Uh, but they're both verses that often don't get well translated into English. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the, the Hebrew and the Greek to, um, to lead us into the practice. So from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Psalm 65, verse 1. And a lot, of, a lot of Bible translations will render that verse something along the lines of, you know, praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you a vow must be fulfilled, or something like that. And, and it, 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 reads, it, it reads very clunky. But if you go back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew is actually very elegant. And what the Hebrew, if you translated it word for word, literally, what the Hebrew says is to you, O God, silence is praise. To you, O God, silence is praise. And for whatever reason, there's just, there's a long, you know, a lot of biblical translation is built on precedent. And there's just a long precedent of that, that verse not being translated well. But I just, I just want to hold that thought. Silence is praise to God. It's not the only way we praise God. We praise God with our voice. We praise God with, with works of righteousness. We praise God with trying to live a holy and godly life. But we can also praise God in silence. So that's, that's the first. The second one comes from uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 11. And, and again, you'll, most of your English translations will render that as something like, aspire to live a quiet life or aspire to live a peaceful life. And, you know, and, and in context, that, that does make sense because he also talks about, you know, minding your own business, you know, and this kind of thing. He's saying, don't be a busybody, live peacefully. So, okay, fine. But the Greek has a shade of meaning that gets lost in translation. The word that you see in this verse is hezekiah, the Greek word hezekiah, which again is a word for silence. But it's also a word that very specifically means contemplative silence or prayerful silence. So what Paul is also saying, he's saying, yeah, he is saying live peacefully. So the translation isn't wrong, quote unquote, but it misses this other shade, live in a contemplative way, live with silence. So the practice I want to offer us is this invitation that, that it really is biblically based to pray through silence. That simply being silent with the intention of prayer is itself an act of praise for God. And that's hard to do because we have little minds that are talkative. And if we try to be silent in an external sense, we bump into how internally noisy we are. Uh, I call it Howard Cosell. People of my age will remember Howard Cosell and older, you know, the, the famous sportscaster, you know, who it was his job to talk and he was a great talker, you know. Um, and so we all have a little Howard Cosell in our mind and we try to be silent before the presence of the Lord and we're just chit chattering away. Okay, you know, again, love who we are, love the person we are, even, even when we're not who maybe we hope to be. But here's what I would like to suggest is that silence is always there, even beneath the mental chatter. And so this idea of being silent before God 
is this way of learning to acknowledge that beneath all the noisiness of life, our heartbeat, our gurgly tummies, air going in and out of our lungs, the mental chatter, emotions, because they kind of cloud our consciousness, all of that, it's all held in silence. And that that silence, it's not the silence of death, it is the silence of love. It is the silence of an old married couple who love each other so much that they can sit together and just be silent and they're perfectly happy. That's the silence that God offers us. And this idea of praying in silence, that silence is prayer, that we should aspire into silence. That is the silence that we're invited into. So with that as the invitation, why don't we just take just three minutes for now Let's take three minutes together and be silent. But of course, I invite uh, each of you and anyone listening to this to consider making that a regular part of your devotional life. So what other ways you pray, whether it's through scripture, through song, you know, just again, through just trying to live a good life, but to try to, to think of silence as a vitamin, a spiritual vitamin, and we need our vitamins. I'm going to shut up now and let us be silent but I invite us to enter into this in prayer.
complete our prayer time, let me share a prayer with you from a wonderful woman who lived in England in the 14th century named Julian of Norwich. And she prayed this prayer. God of your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough for me. I may ask nothing less that is fully to your worship. And if I do ask anything less, ever shall I be in want. Only in you I have all. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carl. This has been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thin Space Podcast. We've added some helpful links to the show notes of this episode. There you'll find a link to Carl's podcast, Encountering Silence, his blog, Anamkara, and his book, Eternal Heart. This is also just part one of our conversation with Carl. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified when the next episode releases. If you would like to help support the ongoing work of the Thin Space podcast, you can do so in one of three ways. First, leave a comment and review for the podcast on your preferred podcast application. Secondly, share the podcast with your network on social media or via email. And third, this podcast is made possible because of generous donors. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation, you can do so at cloudwalk.org donate. May you go in peace, reminded of Christ who lives eternally within you.